Welcome to the Branches podcast. Branches is a community of faith, hope and love in the South Orange County. We are a church for people who don't go to church. If you'd like to learn more about our faith or our community, visit our website at branchesoc.com. Good morning. My name's John or Ash. So we are continuing our series of holding our questions uh, in this Lenten period as we're looking forward to Resurrection Sunday. Uh, We're taking a look at some of the questions that Jesus has for us in the scriptures. And we're going to keep doing that. And our question this week is, how do you read it? Uh, it's kind of a strange question, but that was the one that I was thinking would be, would be a good one for us to look at. And since we're in a theater, we're going to watch a movie, because you expect to watch a movie when you're sitting in a theater. Uh, so we have a video, but I want to frame this video in for you guys a little bit so that you have an idea of why I chose this video or we chose this video as a team and why um, I think it fits within what we're talking about. Uh, But what I want to do is I want to go through our scripture passage and talk about our question, how do you read it? Then I want to give you a little background on the guy that's going to be speaking, because it's not me. I didn't take a video of myself, and then, so it's a different person. And then I want to read a couple passages of scripture that he references in his talk, so that you have some sort of frame of reference. You're not like a child who wanders into a theater in the middle of a movie and you have no frame of reference. This is, you have these passages of scripture. So let's get going on our story from Luke. We're in chapter 10 and we're going to start in verse 25. And this is a familiar story, uh, I'm sure, to many of you. But if it's not, great. This will be your first time hearing it. And, uh, and if you've ever heard about the Good Samaritan, this is that story. So uh, it might be new to some of you. So I'll just, I'll read it, and I think I have it on, it's sort of, you can't really see it, but it's pretty good. Here we go. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, this would be a lawyer or what we would consider a lawyer today, but this would be like a a religious lawyer, someone who really understands the Torah, someone who really understands the Old Testament. So he, he goes to test Jesus. That's not just a good idea. Just for those of you that are new to Jesus, not a good idea to put, to put Jesus on, on the question block. So, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers him with a question, typical Jesus, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your, all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said this, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, just so you know, you always go down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is always up, uh, whether you're coming from the north, the south, the east, the west, even if it's, you're coming from a higher elevation, you always go down from Jerusalem. Uh, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It really is downhill, and uh, you actually drop like, a, like quite a bit of uh, elevation to get down to Jericho. And it was a, considered a dangerous road. So he was attacked by robbers. So this, this story so far, pretty standard. Uh, Yeah, I've heard that all the time. People get attacked by robbers all the time going from Jerusalem to Jericho. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. 
a priest happened to be going down the same road, which is not uncommon. Everybody travels the same road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, who is a member of a priestly tribe, uh, so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, now the story is messed up already. You don't put a Samaritan in your story as a Jew, okay? Just so you know, the Samaritans are hated by Jews. Uh, There's a long history of hatred between them. Um, The Jews were known for kind of wiping out a whole population of Samaritans. And then not too long ago, before this story was spoken, some Samaritans had snuck into the the temple and scattered bones of dead people around the temple. So there's a lot of long, long hatred between these two groups. Uh, So now there's a Samaritan in the story. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, which would be like two days' wages, a couple hundred bucks or more, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then he asked the man, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, there's a lot I could say about this parable, and I'm not going to go into it very much because I I really want to get to our video Uh, But I want to point out a few things. First, the guy who asked this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's actually a really good question. But he's asking it kind of for the wrong reasons, right? Uh, He's trying to stump Jesus, just not a great idea. Jesus does like this judo maneuver on him. um, And he he tells the story, but in the the story he uses the Samaritan. And I was trying to think of how we might modernize this story a little bit. Um, the Samaritan would be like an ISIS terrorist um, in our view, right? So you get beat up, and you're laying on the side of the road here in San Juan, and uh, Pope Francis happens to be cruising by, and he sees you, and sorry, no help from Pope Francis. And uh, Billy Graham or you know Mother Teresa, they're passing by too, and they don't stop either. But then an ISIS terrorist stops and takes pity on you, takes you to, you know, whatever, the the best Western or the Radisson or wherever, and he puts you up for the night, takes care of you, bandages your wounds, and then leaves a couple days, you know, so you can stay for a couple more days there and tells the guy at the front desk, hey, I'll I'll reimburse you for whatever, how much of the minibar he uses. You know, these, this is, this, that would be like that. And, I, and I'm not saying Pope Francis wouldn't stop or these sort of people wouldn't stop. I'm just saying this is the story that Jesus tells to, to give you the idea of, hey, look, you, you're, all of us have stereotypes. We all discriminate in one way or another. And Jesus is saying, you need to let go of, of how you see Samaritans. You need to let go of how you see humanity in general because you tend to categorize. We all tend to categorize. We're all a little bit... Uh, stereotypical or racist in some sort of small way, unfortunately, although we want to think that we're not. Uh, And 
in this case, the Jews were very racist or stereotypical of Samaritans. And so Jesus kind of does the judo maneuver and flips it on him. Who was the neighbor in the story? The neighbor. Who was a neighbor to the man who was beaten? The neighbor was, was the Samaritan. Who is your neighbor? The Samaritan. Who am I to love? Those that I don't love. <laughs> I got to love the people that I don't love. I got to love indiscriminately is what he's saying here. And he asked this question at the beginning, how do you read it? What is written in the scriptures? What is written in the law? How do you read it? And I was thinking about that question uh, because the scriptures, these represent how the world works for a lot of people, how we find our place in it, how we're to please God, how we're to be in right relationships. How do you read it? He asks him. How do you read it? How are you meant to treat others? In other words, the scriptures, you find answers for a fulfilling life. Because he's asking at the beginning, what, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now, we think of eter eternal life as life that just goes on forever. Which, it is that. But wouldn't you agree that life that goes on forever, that is completely empty and wanting, would be more like torture? So many people talk about eternal life being a quality of life. It's God's kind of life. It's the kind of life God has within himself. It's this fulfilling, rich, vibrant vitality of life, not just a never-ending existence. Does that make sense? So what do I have to do to inherit that kind of living? Not just life that goes on forever, though it does do that but the kind of fullness of life that God has within himself. That's what I'm looking for. And that's what the scriptures testify to. How do you read it? How do you read human history, the present, what's to come, your own life with those around you? How do you read it? And in the end, the ISIS figure is the one who behaves like a neighbor. Be a neighbor without discrimination. Read it like that. Now, this video that, that we're about to watch, you're going to hear from Father Gregory Boyle. He's a Jesuit priest. Uh, so those of you with Catholic backgrounds that are still uh, maybe in recovery, um, <laughs> I, would, I would encourage you to be open. Um, he's speaking to... A, pretty much a group of evangelical Christians at a seminary called Fuller Seminary. And, uh, but he's a Jesuit priest and, and sort of a hero of mine. He, uh, he works at the, Do the Dolores Mission in Los Angeles. Uh, he wrote a book not too long ago called Tattoos on the Heart. If you're taking notes, write that book down, Tattoos on the Heart. And it will, uh, you'll laugh and you'll cry in the same chapter. Uh, it's an unbelievable book uh, about his stories of working with the 80,000-plus gang members that are in Los Angeles. Um, he started some businesses, one a tattoo removal uh, ministry. He's got um, a bakery. He's got Homeboy Industries, a screen printing shop, um, Homeboy Bakery, Homeboy Homegirl Cafe. You can buy Homeboy tortilla chips at Ralph's. They've got all kinds of things that they're doing to help these gang members get out of gangs and to make a livelihood for themselves and their families and the kids that they have. Uh, so he's going to talk about in this video how to read people. How do you read those that you see? What do you see in them? 
And he'll quote a few verses, and I want you to be familiar with them. So I'm going to read them to you to give you some context. And then we'll get straight to the video, and then I'll wrap up afterwards. So he quoted some verses right at the beginning. He quotes a couple verses, so listen for them. And he starts with this passage from Isaiah in the Old Testament, and it's paralleled in the New Testament in the book of Revelation. And this is talking about when God puts everything back together, a time we're all longing for. In Isaiah 25, verse 8, we read, He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. And then in Revelation 21, verse 4, we read, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Tears wiped away, death swallowed up. And then the last reference is a little more obscure, and it comes from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. I won't read the whole thing, but it's all about the resurrection day, that morning. And uh, the particular part of the passage, you know, it's so appropriate because we're approaching Resurrection Sunday. And this particular part of the passage is when Mary goes to find Jesus at the tomb and his body's gone, but she runs into him and makes a slight miscalculation about who he is. Um, And and so we're going to pick it up in verse 11. And it says this, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, like you do, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will, care, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. I love this. She, she thinks he's the gardener. <laughs> and John is not making any mistake in this passage when he's writing this down. You thought he was the gardener? (laughs) I'm going to put that in there. Because she's telling the story, right? I thought he was the gardener. And John's not missing this. It's the first day of the week if you read in John 1, John 20 verse 1. It was early that morning on the first day of the week. It's the first day of the week. The last day, the, the sixth day of the last week was Good Friday, where Jesus cries out, it's finished. And now, it's the first day of a new week. And God incarnate is in the garden. And he meets Mary, and she mistakes him for the gardener, which in an important sense, he is. In a metaphorical way, he is the gardener. He is, this is the new creation. There's a new, fresh start for humanity, and everything's been revealed to Mary, and she recognizes him and cries out to him. So what I want you guys to do in this time, as we watch this video, he didn't know that I was going to be giving this sermon before he gave his, so uh, give him a break. Um, <laughs> But we're going to watch this video and keep in mind 
how do we read it? How do we see others? Who is our neighbor? Let's watch. wiped away, uh, death swallowed up, victorious meaning and the risen life hidden in the gardener, the risen life hidden in me recognizes the hidden risen life hidden in you and in the gardener and in the gang member. Uh, we want our risen life uh, extraordinary. We want it spectacular. We want it cast of thousands and cost of millions. We want it out of the ordinary. We don't want it in the gardener. Uh, years ago, I was on a, a sabbatical, and I was uh, privileged to go to the Holy Land. I remember we were staying once uh, near the Sea of Galilee, and I get up really early, so I got up before the sun, and I stood out by the water's edge, and I could hear the gentle lapping of the water, and I could see the moon still shimmering on the uh, top of the water. And I stood there and I said, Jesus walked on this water. And exactly at that moment, this light uh, burst behind me and it illumined the whole area where I was standing. And, and I said, yes, Lord. And I turned slowly towards the light, and the McDonald's had just opened at. Uh, so I went in and got a cup of coffee. Boy, do we want this spectacular and out of the ordinary. And Jesus seems to insist that it's in fluorescent light and an egg McMuffin. The risen life, hidden in your life, and in a special way, hidden in those on the margins, in the poor, in the powerless, in the voiceless, in those whose burdens are more than they can bear, in those whose dignity has been denied, hidden in the easily despised and the readily left out, in the demonized with whom we choose to stand so that the demonizing will stop in the disposable in whom we choose to stand so the day will come when we stop throwing people away tears wiped away death swallowed up victorious meaning and the risen life hidden in them in you here and now. Maybe some of you have been to a homegrown cafe um, where women with records, young ladies from rival gangs, waitresses with attitude will gladly take your order. Uh, a year ago, uh, Oscar-winning actress Diane Keaton showed up for lunch, uh, she of uh, Annie Hall and Godfather fame. Uh, she'd never been there. She came with a regular, a guy who uh, 
is there once a week. And her waitress's day is Glinda. Glinda's a homegirl, been there, done that, tattooed, been to prison, parolee, felon. She doesn't know who Diane Keaton is. And so she's taking her order, and Diane Keaton says, well, what do you recommend? And uh, Glinda rattles off the three platillos that she particularly likes, and, and Diane Keaton says, I'll have that second one. That sounds good. And, and suddenly something dawns on Glinda, and she says, wait a minute. I feel like I know you from somewhere, you know? Like maybe we've met. <laughs> and Diane Keep decides to, uh, you know, deflect it humbly. Oh, gosh, I don't know. I suppose I have one of those faces that pe people think they've seen before. And, and then Glenda goes, no, now I know. We were locked up together. <laughs> That just took my breath away. Uh, I don't believe we've had any further Diane Keaton sightings now that I think of it. <laughs> but there is a life hidden in an Oscar-winning actress and in an attitudinal waitress. Exactly right. Tomorrow morning I will bury my 181st young human being killed in our streets for no reason whatsoever. His name was Richard. He was born in the very first week I arrived at Dolores Mission Church 27 years ago. I've known him all his life. We hope against hope that every tear will be wiped away, that death will be swallowed up, that there will be some victorious meaning in a senseless loss of life. All of us are called to be what Alice Miller, the late great child psychologist, called enlightened witnesses, people who through your kindness and tenderness and focused attempt of love return people to themselves. But most particularly, you return people to an unshakable recognition that the risen life is hidden in their life. That's what we're called to do. Uh, I wrote a book, uh, and uh, it last fall, uh, there were any number of universities that seemed to force their students to read my book, so I felt obliged to go when they invited me to speak, you know, like, so the uh, Gonzaga University in Spokane, my alma mater, uh, forced the entire freshman class to read my book. So I felt sorry for them, and I flew up there. And uh, often enough, bring homies or homegirls with me to travel, uh, just so they can have the experience of seeing a world outside their own. Uh, and so I brought uh, two homies uh, with me, uh, uh, Bobby, African-American gang member who works in the bakery, and Mario, a Latino gang member who works in our homeboy, homegirl uh, merchandise division. I always invite homies or homegirls who have never been on a plane before, which is, you know, most of them haven't. I've never in all my life, of the hundreds and hundreds I've taken flying, I, I've uh, never met a homie more panicked and terrified than this guy Mario. I mean, hyperventilating. I thought I might have to call the paramedics at some point in our travels. 
And so we were flying out of Burbank, and um, you know Burbank Airport, it's smaller, and Southwest Airlines, and you know these big bay windows, and you see the plane arrive, and you know, and you have you walk out on the tarmac, no no kind of hermetically sealed chute, you know you. And so at, at Burbank, they have the stairs leading up to the front of the plane and the stairs leading up uh, to the back of the plane. And uh, Mario is quite nervous, and we're sitting by the window. I said, well, here's our plane. And the plane arrives. It's early morning, and everybody gets off the plane. And then I watch two flight attendants, females, with very large cups of Starbucks coffee, and they're clomping up the front steps to the plane, one after the other. And Mario goes, when are we going to board the plane? And I said, well, and as soon as they sober up the pilot, um, <laughs> there they go now. <laughs> All right, maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I'm not very good at this. I uh, once was with three homies were flying to Oakland, and uh, they were all panicky, especially this one wiry little uh, kid named Joey. And uh, every time I tried to calm him down, he says, you're forgetting I'm not a frequent flyer. And he said, <laughs> So we're about to land in Oakland, and the pilot gets on and, and says, uh, flight attendants, prepare for arrival. And Joey gets panicking. He says, oh my god, that was the pilot. What did he just say? I didn't hear him. I said, I didn't get it all either. Something about emergency landing and <laughs> parachutes, I think, was something else. <laughs> anyway, I'm not good at this. So I... I uh, so Mario is quite panicked, and uh, I should tell you that Mario is one of uh, the most tattooed individuals uh, we've almost ever had work at Homeboy Industries in our 25 years, uh, thousands and thousands, and maybe he's the number two most tattooed individual. Uh, he's completely covered, his arms are covered, his neck, and the only thing on his face is sort of a circle uh, where his eyes and his nose and mouth are, but everything else is covered with tattoos. I'd never been out in public with him, so there I am at the... Burbank Terminal, and, and I'm noticing how people are kind of doing this, you know, and mothers are vaguely clutching their kids, you know, which is odd because uh, Mario is among the most kind, gentle, angelic gang members I've ever met, though the packaging might suggest otherwise. And so uh, I watched how throughout the whole trip, and even on the plane, for as terrified as he was, he was hyper uh, polite and kind and gentle. Uh, as the flight attendant was handing him peanuts, you know, he, he didn't just take them and he didn't just thank her. He, he grabs her hands and looks her in the eyes and says, thank you so much. So kind. Well, we get to Spokane and of course the big talk is at night that I'm going to give. and. Uh, but then, of course, this happens when you, they fly you somewhere. They plan all these other things, you know, a class, a class, a talk, a class, a lunch, a meeting, a class. And I thought, oh, my God. So I turned to, to Bobby and to Mario. I said, I'm not going to speak at any of these events. You guys are. Uh, I'm going to sit in the back of the classroom. Of course, you know, they're a little bit nervous about doing this, and they're not used to telling their story, and homies sometimes uh, don't know they have a story until they start to tell it. And so I watched and listened stories of great terror and violence, abandonment, rejection, heartache. If their stories had been flames, you'd have to keep your distance. Otherwise, you'd get scorched. 
So the nighttime comes, and it's the big talk, and there are a thousand people packed in there, uh, standing room only, students sitting on the floor, in direct violation of fire code. And, and I told uh, Bobby and Mario, look, I want you guys, after I speak, to just do a little five-minute snapshot of your lives, just like you've told it all day, so that you can be included in the question and answer. And, of course, they were a little nervous, especially Mario, because it's a thousand people. So I spoke for 45 minutes, and then they gave their little snapshot. And they were great, though Mario was sort of terrified at the prospect, and, but he got through it. So, a question and answer, and they turn, and a woman will, yes, ma'am. And she stands, and she says, yeah, I have a question. It's for Mario. Well, Mario steps up to the microphone, yes? And the first question out the gate is for him, and she says, um, you say that your father, you have a daughter and a son, and they're about to enter their teenage years. What wisdom do you impart to them? What advice do you give them? And Mario stands there, and he closes his eyes, and he wants to get the right answer, and the one that's formulating in his head, and he blurts out, I just, and he catches himself, and he starts to crumble a bit under the weight of the thing, and he loses his battle against tears, but he wants to get this whole sentence out. I just don't want my kids to turn out to be like me. And there's silence until the woman stands, and she says with great emotion, why wouldn't you want your kids to turn out to be like you? You are gentle, you are kind, you are loving, you are wise. I hope your kids turn out to be like you. And a thousand total strangers stand and they will not stop clapping. And they clap and they clap. And all Mario can do is just hold his face in his hands, so overwhelmed that a room full of strangers had chosen to return himself to himself, risen life, hidden there. And I think that's the only praise God has any interest in. At Homeboy Industries, uh, it's tough sometimes for enemies to work alongside their enemies. A gang member will come in and he'll say, I'm ready, and I'll say, okay, I have an opening for you at the bakery, but you have to work with X, Y, and Z, and I rattle off the names of enemies. And they always think for a while, and then they say the same thing. They go, uh, well, I'll work with them, but I'm not going to talk to them which used to bother me in the old days until, of course, you discovered that it's impossible for human beings to demonize people they know. You can't really sustain that. So this one day, uh, I was walking a new hire, a guy everybody called Youngster, that was his gang name. And Youngster, I walk him into our homeboy silkscreen factory, our biggest business, been around for 18 years. And uh, it's a huge factory off campus, if you will. 2,500 customers from all over the country. It's a, uh, our best business. And so I'm going to introduce him to his 30 co-workers in the, on the floor of the factory. And 
And I walk him through and I watch as he shakes hands of everybody, including enemies, looks them in the eye. I think, wow, this is great. Until I get to the last guy, a kid everybody calls Puppet, and Puppet seems to be wanting to avoid this encounter altogether. When Puppet and Youngster are in each other's vicinity, they mumble something, they stare at their shoes, they don't shake hands. Well, I know they're enemies because I know what gangs they come from. But he just finished shaking hands with other enemies. So I, I, I say, I, I sense uh, and discover later that this is a hatred uh, that's deep and personal beyond which neither of them think they can get past. So I, I sense that much at the moment. I say, look, if you guys can't hang working together, let me know. I got a bunch of people who want this job. Calladito, silence. Six months later, a puppet is walking to a store some distance from his home, a little corner store. On his way home, he decides to take a shortcut, so he dodges into an alley. And because he's taken this detour, suddenly he's surrounded by 10 members of a rival gang, 10 against one. They beat him badly. He falls to the ground, and while he's lying there, they will not stop kicking his head until he's lifeless. Somebody finds him, takes him to White Memorial Hospital, where he's declared effectively brain dead. But it's the policy at the hospital to keep you connected to machines for 48 hours, so you can get two days of a flat read, and then the doctors sign the death certificate. This allowed family and friends to gather. I was at St. Louis University giving a talk. I flew home. I've seen a lot of horrible things in my life, but nothing to compare to the sight of this young man with his head swollen many times its size. It was horrifying. You could barely train your eyes on him. So at the end of the 48-hour period, I give him a blessing. I anoint his forehead with oil. We disconnect, and a week later, I bury him. But in the first 24 hours, I'm alone in my office. It's 8.30 at night, and the phone rings, and it's youngster, puppet's co-worker from the silkscreen. Hey, he says, that's messed up about what happened to Puppet. I said, yeah, it is. And then with a certain kind of eagerness even, he says, is there anything I can do? Can I give up my blood? And we both fall silent under the weight of it until finally he breaks the silence, choking back his tears. And he says with great deliberation, he was not my enemy. He was my friend. We worked together. Can I say that always happens at Homeboy Industries? Yeah. Any exceptions? No. And it shouldn't surprise us that God's own dream come true for us. That we discover and recognize the risen life within us just happens to be our own deepest longing for ourselves. Tears wiped away. Death swallowed up. Victorious meaning and the risen life hidden within us.
I'm sorry I didn't warn you to bring tissue. Um, how do you read it? What kind of life are you living? Do you want God's quality of life? Do you want an eternal kind of life? Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? How do you read it? And I had just written some questions for myself. Are you, are you able to see the image of the risen life that is hidden in each person you come across? You know, in cards or in poker, they talk about how you read people. And in general, we read people every day. In every interaction, you're reading somebody. Are you a neighbor that sees the image of the risen Christ hidden in every person? It's there. It's there. It's just hidden. Oh, that we would have eyes to see, Jesus would often say. How do you read it? Are you a neighbor? Tears wiped away, death swallowed up. Victorious meaning and the risen life hidden within us. How do you read it? Will you pray with me? Jesus, we, uh, we confess that often we are not good readers. And sometimes we cannot see what is hidden within each person, the image that they bear. That there is a risen life hidden within them and that we have in every moment an opportunity to return people to themselves, to discover that God-given image that they bear and to be remade a new creation hiding within each person. Would you give us eyes to see and wisdom to read like you read? Amen.